and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. So there's two types of people that God, through the prophet Isaiah, is talking to in this text. First and foremost, Isaiah is speaking these words, but God is speaking to a person who has no money and has needs. He says, even though you're broke, I will invite you to come and pay with no price. Water, milk, wine, come and enjoy. You don't have to pay. And then the second person that God is speaking to here is the one who has means, who has money, and he says to them, why do you use your money and your resources and buy things that don't really satisfy you? Why do you keep doing that? Why not come to me and I'll give you what you cannot earn? I'll give you what you cannot buy. Two different people that God is speaking to here. And I think what he does is God gives insight into a very familiar aspect of the human condition. And it is this, that you and I often use resources to acquire things that we hope are going to meet our needs at a soul level, but that they can never truly satisfy us in the end. Has anybody ever had that experience? All right, another one person. This is good. We're on a roll. If you haven't had this experience in a few months, you're going to have a real opportunity with Black Friday, okay? It's called buyer's remorse, right? Have you ever had buyer's remorse? It's where for whatever reason in the moment, you are sure if I get this, it's going to make me so happy. And then by the time you spend the money on it and you're done with it, you're like, oh no, why did I get this, right? If you're a parent, you've done this with your children. They've begged you for something, begged you for something. You've stood in line for ungodly amounts of time, got them this gift, and in three hours, it was already on its way to Goodwill. They were tired of it. And you had buyer's remorse for them. It didn't give them what they really, really wanted, or at least what they thought it would give them. So many of you have iPhone 10s in your pocket that you spent a mortgage payment for, right? And, and, and when you got it, you're like, this little piece of technology, it's going to do it. And then now it's cracked, you know, and you've gotten four up software updates on it, and it barely even works. Your kids spilled their sippy cup all over it. You're not even sure if it takes pictures anymore, all right? The pixels don't matter. But when you first bought it, you, would, you, were, you were certain, right, that this thing is going to be the new revolutionary tool for my productivity or whatever it may be. Or maybe, you know, if you're a social media fiend, that it was going to make your Instagram posts follow worthy, you know? And, and, and in the end, it actually didn't end up that way. I read this quote when I was preparing for a sermon, and I just thought it was funny. This guy says, the only reason that a great many American families don't own an elephant is because they've never been offered an elephant for $1 down in, weekly, in easy weekly payments. <laughs> isn't that true? It, I mean, isn't that true? It's so funny, the weird culture that we live in. We would buy extravagant stuff if it was just offered to us in financing, right? Now, not because we necessarily need it, but because in the moment, we're convinced this thing is the thing that's going to do the trick for my soul. And, and I think that what happens, and this is maybe a particular suburban temptation, and I say this because I grew up my whole life here, and so I'm very familiar with this idea. There's a theology of life that we live by without knowing that we live by it. And it goes something like this. Work all that you can so you can make all that you can, so you can build all that you can, so that one day you can enjoy the fruit of your labors and what your soul really desires. This is kind of a theology that we live by. 
work all that you can so you can make all that you can so you can build all you can so that one day you can enjoy the fruit of your labors. Whatever it is that you desire that you've built for yourself, you can enjoy that. And here's what we do. We kind of build, if I gave you, uh, whether you're an artist or not, if I gave you a pencil and I told you, draw for me your idea of the good life, you would draw a picture of something and what we do is we leverage our resources to get there because what I know about you without even knowing you is that you're not in the good life yet. You're headed there though. I know that about you without knowing you because I'm there too and this is the human condition. There's a, there's a future version of yourself that you like more than the current version of yourself and you're pretty sure everybody else does too and you're headed there. There's a future version of yourself that's sexier, there's a future version of yourself that's cooler, there's a future version of yourself that has more money, there's a future version of yourself that has more comfort, there's a future version of yourself that's better at your job or has a different job, and you're headed there, and you just gotta make the appropriate steps. Your picture of the good life probably has one of these ingredients, if not all, or at least a combination of them. Maybe it's marriage and family. You have a loving spouse and you got obedient kids that just don't set things on fire anymore. Or it involves work and vocation. You're successful and you're respected by your peers. Or it involves recreation and travel. You have fun, you get to go other places. You got a passport with a bunch of stamps and say, when you step up to the customs line, you open that up and you're like, let me, page seven, <laughs> right? You're that guy or gal, it's a version. Or maybe it's possessions and finances. You have your toys and don't think that, you know, just because we're adults, we don't have the, the, the toys of our life, right? Whether it be a car, whether it be a house, or, you know, we do. So maybe you have that, and then you have security. You got a nest egg that makes you feel, your bank account makes you feel comfortable, right? You've done the Ramsey plan, and you've got six months at least nestled away, or more. And that's what it's gonna be like to have the good life. Maybe it's perception and image. At the end of the day, you are going to be one day viewed by others the way you really want to be viewed, and the way you really are. That right now you're not there, but you're getting there. Or maybe it's comfort and autonomy. The good life for you is that one day there's gonna be minimal suffering and you'll have total control over your life. It's probably one of those, maybe it's a few of those, maybe it's a mixture of all of those, but what I know about us is that we do have a picture in our minds that we hope we can leverage our resources to get to. And what do these things really represent? They represent our longing for home. We long, all of us, whether you're a believer or not, you long to get back to Eden we long to have, a health, have healthy, soulful relationships, to have purposeful and meaningful work, to have authority over the things that God has given us and safety and security that at the end of the day, everything's gonna be okay. We long for that. And I wanna take the pressure off you this morning to say this to you because maybe no one's ever said it. God wired you that way. It's not wrong that you want those things. God wired you that way. In fact, when he put Adam and Eve in the garden, he gave them all those things. Healthy, soulful relationships. He gave them meaningful work. I know some of you think, no, work is a part of the fall. All right, read your Bible. That's not true. Okay? We had, we had meaningful work that, that, that mattered before the fall. We had safety and security. Everything was going to be okay. We had authority that God had given us. There were the things that he, he gave us. And then we know, though, that even though we're wired this way, there are two realities that nag at us. And those two realities are this. Number one, we know that the world is broken. It's not like it's meant to be. And lastly, we know that we're hopeless to make it all right on our own. <laughs> Every morning we wake up and we know that things aren't right. This is why we get really caught up with getting politicians because deep down we want someone to make it right. 
We want to get the right person in office to get the right legislation so that we can make these things right. Because you and me both know that things aren't right and we want it to be right because we got a picture of the good life and maybe a politician that we vote in could help. Whether that be at a local level or a federal level, we want that. And so we pursue it. But deep down we know that we're hopeless to do this just by ourselves. And so even in our pursuits, no matter how successful we are, we find ourselves unfulfilled. And check this out. God knows this about you. And in Isaiah 55, he doesn't let you or me let it be the elephant in the room. He actually pokes at it a little bit. He goes, hey, why, why don't you want to address this? That you keep chasing these bubbles that burst. Why do you keep doing that? So check it out. Under the sound of my voice, I'm pretty confident that you're in one of these two camps. Maybe in... This morning, you have the means. Now, that probably is two varying levels in this room, but you have the means. You, got, you feel like, I have the strength, I have the health, I have the finances, I have the influence, I have the relationships to seek out my portion of the good life. But deep down, the other thing that you know is that God's word is true and that those things won't eventually satisfy you. Check this out. You even know that the good things that you're enjoying right now can't satisfy you to the level that you really need. Like the spouse you sit next to that you love dearly, if you have to only be married for so long before you realize they're not, they're great gifts, terrible gods, aren't they? Because they really can't give you, see our culture tells you a different story, right? Watch enough like rom-coms on Netflix and you'll start being convinced if I just get the right spouse, then I'll be fulfilled. See, the problem with that is that you're going to have to continue to get a new spouse every six months because you'll be like, this is the wrong one. It has to be. It's broken. Here's what I can promise you, is that not only is your spouse broken, but you brought your brokenness in, and therefore, it's not going to give you what you deeply desire. Now, I will say this, though. It doesn't mean that it's not a good gift. Your children, maybe you're holding the hand of your child or your infant. What a great gift, right? But if you're a mom or a dad, I hope that you've gotten to the place to realize that they can't complete you at a soul level. I hope it happened when you realize they don't really contribute much in the early days. I'm going to be honest. Like, other than being a little tax shelter, they're not doing a great job. <laughs> and check this out. This is kind of dangerous, too, isn't it? Because we live in a broken world and we're Christians. Many of you, maybe you thought that doing Christian things would fulfill you. Once I get to be a part of the worship team, it's going to all be okay. How many sets did it take you to realize that wasn't true? Once I'm a home group leader, then I'll be fulfilling my call of God, and then I'll, be, I'll feel how long did that take, guys? Being in the children's ministry, that's what'll do it. I'll get back there and I'll love, love on some kids. How long did that take? See, the, the, what gets weird here is we start to think Christian duties are gonna actually give us fulfillment, and in reality, we get disappointed. So then what happens? Well, we get disappointed, we get disgruntled, we get disenchanted, we start blaming other people. Maybe it's the church that's the problem, maybe it's the leadership, maybe it's my wife that's the problem, maybe it's my husband, maybe it is my kids, maybe it's all the idols we thought would fulfill us, maybe they're the problem. And so we start continuing on our search. Or you might be in the second camp in this room. Maybe you're in this room right now and you say, uh, I don't have the means. And it even frustrates you that I talk like that because you're like, aha, sounds great. I don't have the means. You're like, I don't have the strength. I don't have the health. I don't have the finances. I don't have the influence. I don't have the relationships to seek out what I think the good life might be for me. And so all of my life is a perpetual frustration because I feel helpless 
I hate the fact that I'm fearful about making rent. I hate the fact that I can't make my car note. I hate the fact I can't pay my bills. And I hate the fact that you're acting like it's very easy for me to get what I want. You want to know the irony? Is that where you end up is no different than your friend. Disappointed, disgruntled, disenchanted, blaming others. And wondering why it can't be all right. It doesn't matter which camp you're in. The end game is the same. And so here's what God says. God looks into our human condition and he says this, what you've always truly needed and desired, you can't buy with money and you can't earn with right actions. Or Augustine said it like this, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. See, Augustine understood. He said, God made us for himself and so every other substitute, it will never give us what it promises. And so, we will be perpetually frustrated until we realize how you were made and then understand the offer that God has for you. So what does God say in this text? I think it's interesting that his invitation here doesn't just end with come to me. He gives you some analogies. So he says this, come have water, come have milk, come have wine. How many of you have ever run like for an extended distance or if you're anything like me, if you just, you know, when it rains, you run to your car and you're out of breath, but... And you've gotten to that place where you're like, I, I, nothing but water will quench my thirst. Anybody ever been there? Like somebody offers you like soda, you're like, ugh, you know, it's sweet tea, ugh, warm milk. You know, it's like, no. But ice cold water, right? God offers water because what he's telling you here is when you're dying of thirst, you can't have anything else. When you're withering away, nothing else is going to satisfy you. Why does he offer milk? When I was a kid, there was this ad, you know, milk does a body good. Anybody remember that? It was basically this idea of strength, nourishment. God offers that. He says, you need strength. You need to be nourished. You can't get it anywhere else. Come and buy this milk without price. And then the last one he says here, and I gotta be careful. He says, come have a glass of wine with me. Hmm. Now, I, I know we have children in the room, but do we know that wine has a connotation to it? What does wine offer you? Mirth, enjoyment, merriment. And I know that Jesus doesn't offer us just a, a, a bottle of Welch's, because in the book of John, Jesus' first miracle was at the end of the wedding when they're all running out of wine, his mother comes to him and says, we've ran out of wine. It's going to be a great shame unless we can provide wine. I know you can do it. She turns to the men and says, do whatever he tells you to do. Jesus says, take these six jars, which they say is about 50 gallons apiece. That's more than a glass. <laughs> Fill them with water. And he turns it into wine. They bring it to the master of the feast. He says, wow. Usually they put out the good stuff first. And then when everybody's a little tipsy, then they say, bring out the cheap, bring out the boxed wine. But you have saved the best for last. God says, come and have wine. Now, here's what I know. I know for you sitting here, we have 7.5 roughly billion people on the planet. So I know just where you're at, you probably in this room, there are various different hobbies, backgrounds, interests. We have different tastes in music in here, different tastes in movies, different tastes in clothes, in sports, in food, in fashion. I know that not everyone is the same, but I also know this. There are certain baseline things about the human race that will always be the same. We have a baseline set of needs that will be true of all of us forever. Physiological, psychological, spiritual needs. We have needs of the body, needs of the mind, needs of the soul that don't change. As long as you're a human being, you have them. And God speaks to these needs and says, you can't meet these needs without me. He says it like this. Come have water. Every one of you need to be revived. 
and there's no other stream but mine. There's this uh, line, and I, th- I think I've even mentioned it before, but there's this, there's this line in one of uh, the Narnia books from C.S. Lewis where the, this, this girl, Lucy, is thirsty. She's dying of thirst, and so she finds her way to a stream, but in between her and the stream is, uh, is a lion. She doesn't know it's Aslan, but it's, it's a lion. And she's scared. She says, I've got to get to the stream, and she's trying to figure out how am I going to dodge this lion? He could just devour me. And so she says, um, are you a good lion? He says, Good. No, she says, are you a safe lion? That's what she says. Are you a safe lion? He's like, I don't know. He says, I don't know safe lions, but I'm a good lion. And she says, oh, she's still him hawing around. I don't know what I'm going to do. Could you, could you move over there and I can have a drink? He says, no. She's like, have you ever eaten anyone? And he says, the lion says, I've devoured whole kingdoms. I was like, oh, great. And she says, okay, okay, well, I'll go find another stream. And he looks at her and he says, what God says to us through Isaiah, there is no other stream. You come this way or you don't get a drink. God looks to us and says, you need to be revived. There is only one stream and it's here, come. And here's the good news. He says, you might be afraid of me or you might feel like you don't have the means, but I am good and I've already paid the price. Come and drink. He says, come and have milk without price. You all need to be strengthened. See, some of us, we think we only need to be strengthened in certain seasons of our life, but I'm here to tell you that if you only knew how weak you were on a daily basis, you would jump at the opportunity to come and get what he's offering. See, sometimes we're tricked and fooled into believing we're stronger than we are. God says, you need to be strengthened. Come to me, I'll give you without price. And then lastly, wine. What I know about you without knowing you is that if you're sitting under the sound of my voice, you don't want to just exist in your life. You want to truly live. Like you don't want to go through your life so monotonous that you feel like I just let life happen to me. You want joy. You want deep satisfaction. You want meaning. And God says to me, if you want that, there's no other way but here. And the good news is I'm offering it to you. So you can go have any other wine that you want. Go take the boxed wine. It'll give you a headache. Or you can come to me. All right? See, God says to us in the gospel, come to me, I'm going to meet your needs. I'm here to do what everything and everyone else has promised you to do but failed to do. I'm here to do that for you. What's the catch, Lord? What's the price? I paid it. Okay. What else do we find in this text? Well, there are 10 commands in this scripture, which I think that's, this is interesting, right? Ten commands in this text, and for me, I grew up, I think it's safe to say, in the buckle of the Bible belt, so when I think of God's commands, I think of putting on my tie when I've gained a little bit of weight, and it's a little bit too tight, you know what I'm talking about? Anybody else been there? Just me? Okay. It gets too tight, and I have to wear a tie, and it's like hard for me, a little hot, a little stuffy, hard to breathe. I, I think of the commands of God. I think, okay, when I was a child, God to me was kind of a cosmic killjoy. If I was going to follow God, I couldn't have fun, but at least I wouldn't, you know, eternally have consequences, so I had to kind of like jostle that line. When I thought commands, I thought, ugh, he's not going to want me to do the things that I do. If you want to know who I was before Christ, we can have a whole other conversation, but I knew, Right? But I want you to listen in on these commands in the gospel invitation and ask yourself this question. Do you feel as though this God is a cosmic killjoy? Listen to what he says. Come to me if you're thirsty. Come to the waters. Buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Listen to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear to me. Come to me. Hear me. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said it like this, and they'll put it behind me on the screen. 
the invitation to the gospel is an invitation to happiness. In delivering God's message, we don't ask men to come to a funeral, but to a wedding feast. I love this last line. It is not likely that the God who made a happy world would send to us a miserable salvation. Amen? I want to pastor you for a moment because I think some of us are good at this and some of us, we just need to be encouraged. You should be happier than you are. You should smile more. Some of you are great at smiling. You're great at celebrating. I want to encourage some of you others. Smile sometimes. Be happy in the gospel. Do you know what's true for you today can't be changed? If you're in Christ today, the penalty of your sin, the worst possible fear you could ever have has been eradicated and you had nothing to do with it and you didn't even deserve it. And check this out. And what God has done, he has done without relenting and without repentance and he will not undo it nor let anyone else to undo it. Romans says it like this. No one can take you out of the hand of a loving father because the love of Christ is stronger. That's great news. You might be thinking, well, my circumstances are tough. That's why you should smile more because what I'm telling you isn't based on your circumstances. Well, my home life was tough or I was raised in a tough family or you don't know what I have done. This is why you should smile because this is based not on any of those things. And because you did not earn this, therefore you can't lose what you didn't earn. That's great news. We should smile more about that. We should be a celebratory people because of that, guys. I read a, a biography of Abraham Lincoln, and one day this man was uh, applying to be a part of his cabinet, and he said, no, I'm not interested in that man. He said, why? He said, I got all the credentials. He's got all the, everything's lined up. Why don't you, he's like, I don't like the way his face looks. <laughs> and he was talking about his disposition. And he says, well, he can't change his disposition. Like, he just, he's got kind of a frowny face. He can't change that. And Abraham Lincoln looked at them and said, any man over the age of 40 can, can, can control what his face looks like. I don't like his attitude. He's not going to be on my team. See, here's the deal. Many of us might blame our poor dispositions on it's just me. I'm just this. I'm just introverted. I'm just, it's my, it's my mean resting face. And I want to encourage you and say, friends, <laughs> you have a gospel that should bring smiles from ear to ear, and it should do it in the worst possible circumstances. And God did not just invite you to that gospel one time when you were a teenager at summer camp. He's inviting you to experience it again this morning so that you might leave out of here and be smiling from ear to ear, even if you're in the worst circumstances in the world's eyes. Because what's been given can't be taken away. I want to ask you, this is God's call to us this morning. Can you hear his voice calling to you? This is his invite. Do you hear it? Because many of you, you might be thinking God's call to you is clean up your act, get your stuff together, stop messing around. Or to be more theological, stop sinning. Stop with the same stuff over and over again. Clean your life up. And in actuality, the call of God in Isaiah 55 is this. Stop striving to do it on your own. Stop striving to get and gain what you can't buy or earn. Jesus has already done everything that needed to be done. Accept my invite. Okay, now, if you're at all theological, you're probably thinking, Court, you're telling me this is a gospel call, but this is from Isaiah, Okay? Jesus doesn't come until much later. I'm not, a, I'm not too smart, but I'm that smart. Okay, here's what I love about the Bible, though, is the Bible is so congruent that everything that we see from Genesis all through the prophets, all through the narratives, all the way into the New Testament, Jesus will fulfill, whether by word or by deed. 
And so turn with me, if you can, to John chapter number 6. And we've got to move kind of quickly through this text. So I'm going to, as you're turning there, John chapter 6, verse 25, I'll catch you up on the story. What's happened so far in John 6 is Jesus has now done one of the most miraculous miracles uh, that are in the Gospels. He's fed 5,000 people with a little boy's lunch. Jesus turns to his disciple Philip and says, how are we going to feed these people, Philip? The Bible says that he says this because he's testing Philip. He already knows what he's going to do, but he wants to hear what Philip has to say. I love that. He's testing Philip's problem-solving abilities. And what he wants to really for Philip to say is, I have no idea, but I'm glad you're here. God sometimes does this to us. He might say, what are you going to do here, Court? And I'll say, well, I've got a plan. What I should say is, God, I don't know, but I'm glad you're in the boat. Right? So he begins to take this little boy's lunch Five loaves, two fish, and break in hand, and break in hand, and break in hand, and break in hand. It says that 5,000 men were fed. Commentators say maybe 20,000 men, women, and children eat. Everyone is absolutely floored. They say, grab him, let's make him our king. He's our Messiah. Jesus dusts on them. He has no interest in getting the crown uh, of the world before he goes through the crown of thorns. So he leaves. It says the disciples get on a boat, go through the Sea of Tiberias, and they hit a storm. They're like, oh no, why did we leave without Jesus? They're all crying out, we're going to die. They see Jesus walking to them on water. It's a ghost. Jesus says, peace be still, gets onto the boat. They immediately land, and they all look around and say, who is this guy that he does this stuff? And so we pick up the story where they land on the other side of the Sea of Tiberias, and the crowds wake up and go, where did Jesus go? We saw his disciples. We're going to pick up the story in verse 25. When they found him, the crowds, on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They knew that Jesus didn't enter the boat, but now he's on the other side. Now, I love what Jesus does here. He could have said, well, I don't need boats. I walk on water. But he doesn't. He doesn't even address their question. Watch what Jesus says to them. Verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. That's calling somebody out, right? Have you ever laughed when reading the Bible? I laughed when I read that. He says, you guys don't really want to hang out with me. You got a free lunch, and you want to ride this gravy train all the way down the tracks. That's why you're here. Now watch verse 27 and tell me it doesn't mirror the call in Isaiah 55. He says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says what God said through the prophet Isaiah, stop laboring and trying to use your money and works to buy that which will not give you what you know you really need. Because you guys worked really hard to get lunch, but you don't understand what you really need. I have to offer it, but you won't ask for that. You'll ask for more food. He says, stop doing that. Stop chasing bubbles that will burst. I'll give you eternal life. I'll give you food that will never perish. I'll give you what your deepest soul desires are, even the ones you don't know about. Ask me of that. God the Father has set upon me his seal. I can offer it. Now watch, I love what, this is a teed up evangelism moment. How do they answer? How we would want everyone to answer. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Ha ha. We always come to religion, right? What do I need to do to earn this? Jesus' answer is this. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you would believe in him whom he has sent. I love that. Jesus says, if you want to be doing the right thing, Trust me, believe in me, embrace me, experience the joy that only I have to offer. Friends, what's the greatest offer in the offer and invitation of the gospel? I, I would 
challenge your theology to tell you the greatest offer is not forgiveness of sins. It's not adoption. It's not cleansing a clear conscience. It's not even eternal life. The greatest offer of the gospel is that we get God himself. That's the greatest offer. Because in gaining Christ, we gain all of those things. Jesus looks at them and says, if you want to know what you ought to be doing, you can embrace, believe in me, and in me, you'll get all of these things. In me, you're going to get eternal life. You're going to get cleansing. You're going to get forgiveness of sins. You're going to have a clear conscience. But in me, you're going to experience at the soul level what you were made to experience. Come to me, Jesus says. Now, how does this relate to mission, though, right? Like we talked a lot about the gospel. How does this relate to mission? Well, like I said earlier, the most important principle of mission is this, that God is not only inviting you, but he's inviting others through you. So in other words, you are God's megaphone or ambassador to the world. He's making his appeal through you. So to you and then through you. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, in verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God makes his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Paul knew that he was not only meant to experience the invitation of the gospel, but that he was now a conduit to share the gospel invitation with everyone that he met. He said, I implore you, I beg you, be reconciled to God because Jesus has done it. Verse 21, he gives you the gospel. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says, listen, there is no obstacle for you today to be reconciled to God because of Jesus. So, so receive the invitation. What do I need to do? It's already been done. What do I need to pay? The price has been paid. What kind of righteous acts do I have to conjure up to measure up? You can't, and he's already done it, and now imputed to you by faith is his righteousness. He was made sin so that you could be made holy. And Paul says, I am now God's message to you comes through me. Be reconciled. Be reconciled. This is us. Now here's the freeing part. Is that you might be saying, man, I'm an incomplete. If, if I'm anything that God's working on, I am an incomplete work of art. Court. <laughs> so why would God use me? And I will say this to you. You being an incomplete work of art is not a drawback that God's just willing to deal with, but it's an integral means through which God is going to redeem the world. To say it another way, God uses broken people to share his message of healing with broken people. Or God uses thirsty people to share the way to the well for other thirsty people. You see, what you might consider to be your deepest brokenness, God will use in order to make his appeal to others who have that brokenness. Paul said it like this, I was the chiefest of all sinners. Why? So that God might in the coming ages show his immeasurable riches of his grace. Paul knew that the reason that God decided to use him was not just because he loved Paul, but also because he loved the world. And Paul said, if you know me, then you know that you can never be too far gone. You can never have done the too many wrong things. You can't have a more dark sinner than me, Paul says, and God saved me to be a message to the world. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. God's grace is sufficient. And God does that to us that we might be imperfect sharers of the gospel. I heard a story by a guy named Lee Strobel. Many of you might be familiar with him. He's very, very famous with apologetics, but he was preaching a sermon one day and he got off the stage and a man came up to him and said, I just want to say thank you 
Thank you for sharing the gospel with me uh, years ago. My life has never been the same since. And Lee Strobel said, man, I appreciate that. Thank you for telling me that. And he starts to walk away, and he said, I just felt, I didn't, I didn't feel right. I went back to the guy and said, I'm sorry, man. I don't even remember sharing the gospel with you. Can you tell me when and that happened? And the guy goes, oh, no, no, no. I know you don't remember. It's because of the circumstances in which uh, I actually heard you inviting me to uh, Jesus. And so Lee Strobel begins to go back into his mind, and he recalls this moment where he was at his job, and he was getting out of a meeting, and he leaves the conference room, and he keeps feeling this overwhelming sense that the Spirit's checking him and prompting him to walk back to the conference room and share the gospel with his coworker. And he's fighting it and fighting it, and finally, finally he walks back, he shows up to the coworker who is sitting alone in the conference room, and he says, I want to share with you about the gospel of Jesus. And he begins to passionately invite this man to trust God that Jesus has done everything that needs to be done and he's a worthy savior and he gives a great gospel presentation and the man looks back at him and says, thank you, I appreciate that. That's it. And so Lee Strobel says, okay, and then he walks out. <laughs> said years went by, never knew. This man comes up to him at the conference and says, I want you to know that at that moment I was a contractor at that job underneath the table working on the electrical and I heard everything that you said. And my heart of hearts, I felt, I want that, I want that, I want that. And I accepted Jesus underneath the conference room table, and my life has never been the same. Friends, every single day, there's an opportunity for you to not only experience the invitation of God, but to share the invitation of God and be bold and know that it was never you in the first place. If it goes successful in your eyes or it is not successful in your eyes, it was never yours in the first place. How many times have you shared the gospel thinking you're a failure and you just never met the guy under the conference table? How many times have you been faithful and just felt like, you know, I put myself out there and I just get shut down and you don't know what God may have been doing because he makes his appeal through us. And so this morning, I want to implore you. I want to implore you not just to hear the invitation of the Savior to you and not just to accept it outwardly by coming to the table of communion, but accept it inwardly this morning in your heart knowing. And if you're not a believer this morning or you're not sure if you're a believer, I just want to encourage you to say this. God invites you to himself. So for the believer, come to the table, celebrate communion. For the non-believer or not sure believer, I want to encourage you, this is just bread and juice, but he's the real thing. Repent and believe the gospel because he is enough above and beyond what you could ever imagine. And then finally, I would love to pray for us this morning that God would do something in us today so that when we wake up tomorrow, he can do something through us this week. Amen? If you'll stand to your feet, let me pray for you. We'll have prayer volunteers on the right. A prayer of belief will be on the screen. There's a gluten-free option for communion here. And when I'm done praying, I want to invite you. If you'll bow your heads. Father, thank you. Thank you that we get to leave out of here. And with smiles on our face, the gospel's true. And it is no small invitation, Lord. It is no trite thing. And it's not just an invitation into eternal life, Lord. It's an invitation into kingdom life now. Thank you, Lord. That today you are no respecter of persons, but the invite goes out. You are a great God. So Holy Spirit, would you help us? Would you help us to get over our quirks? Stop believing the lies that we've believed. That somehow the things of the world are going to be the things that can fulfill us. God, forgive us that we believe that junk. Oh, Father, would you help someone in this room this morning to abandon chasing bubbles that burst and come to you? 
Help families this morning to open their hands on whatever it is they've been gripping so tightly so that they can experience the gift that is you, Jesus. We invite you to do this work, Lord, because if not for you, where do we run? We love you, Lord. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.